You're listening to a teaching from Grace Church of Dunedin. For more audio messages and resources for missional living, visit gracechurchofdunedin.com. Stand for the reading of God's word. I will be the reader, and then together we can respond as the people. And then uh, Brother John Howe will be coming up here and teaching us this morning. Verse 1, chapter 9 of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They, they heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, hearing, and doing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. And John, how about you come on up here and take it away, my friend. Thanks, buddy. You guys know John? Hey, John. Hey, Mark. Calm down, James. It is a privilege to be here with you guys. I, you know, I love you. And this this series this summer has been very. um, Hey, man, hang on. No, sorry, man. Just gotta get this. Get your coffee. All right. This series has been very challenging for me and my family. We've had a some. We've been spurred spurred to some and motivated to have some really great conversations and, and fellowship over it. Um, and it's, you know, it's an honor to be, to be a part of it here with you all. Uh, my name is John. I'm a deacon here at Grace Church. I'm also the director of Connections. And um, I say that because, man, this summer's been crazy. There are faces here. I've not met you yet, which is kind of bad since I'm the director of Connections. So I would like to meet you, and I would like to talk with you um, and introduce myself and my wife and get you connected. If you're not a part of a community group, this is a great time to jump in. We have study groups. We have prayer groups. Uh, we have community groups all under this umbrella called Grace Groups, and it's just a really important, not only great, not only enriching, not only just fun, but also it's, uh, we believe it's really the, the main thrust of how discipleship happens is by being in community. Um, also, we believe that discipleship primarily happens, and we are remade every day as God's creation, as God's people, through the hearing and meditating and obeying of his word. It is by his word that he created us. It is by his word he has recreated us. And so with that this morning, uh, let's also, Heath uh, has been my pastor since I was 14. I do, do want to mention these. Uh, we're very blessed to have him. Please pray for him and Steve and James as 
uh, in, this, in this hard period of time. It is so important that we hold them up, that we encourage them. Uh, Heath is always encouraging. For example, last week I was at the dentist, scared. Um, I sent him a text. He was texting me about something. I said, hey, man, I'll talk to you about this later. You know, I'm at the dentist right now, and I don't like the dentist, and I'm kind of freaking out. And always encouraging and pastoral, as Heath is, he texts me back, the Lord is with you. Man up, bro. So, <laughs> so I, I did. I did. The hardest, part, the hardest part is sitting down in the chair, because once you're in the chair, they got all this stuff. You don't want to move anyway. So, all right. We are in Acts chapter 9. It is important, though, to give an introduction, I believe, a narrative context of the entire uh, narrative that's known as the Lucan narrative. Acts is a volume 2, the volume 1 being Luke's gospel. Luke is attributed to writing this narrative, and there are very uh, specific motifs or themes or purposes that Luke has in writing this. We can see that they're connected easily. Uh, for one, just the very, the, it's very explicitly, uh, there's a name in the beginning of Luke, that is also in the beginning of Acts, Theophilus. And it, there's a lot of different theories on who Theophilus was, and we're not going to get into those. But it does show a connection in the narrative just there. Also, though, we understand that Luke and Acts, there are certain things that you will not gain, that you will not understand if you don't read them both. There are certain what's called narrative needs that are created in the reader. As we read through Luke, there are certain promises, certain things that we're expecting to happen in the story that we'll never be satisfied. We'll never know unless we continue and know what Acts has to say. And there are many examples of that, uh, which I do encourage you to uh, look into. And I'm not just going to leave you hanging there. Last, last year, I led a study group called um, Meeting Jesus as we walked with him through Luke and Acts. And it was a study on the Luke and narrative, and we get into those kind of topics. Come and see me, and I can email you those, those, those things if you're interested and knowing more about Luke and Acts. But some of the major themes of Luke and Acts I want to focus on today is Apocalypse Now, and I'm not talking about the amazing movie on Vietnam. What I mean is that the, salvif the salvific history of God has come to culmination in Jesus, the Messiah. This is one of Luke's primary targets and purposes. This is what seems to be on his mind through everything, is that he sees himself as living in this apocalypse, really, that not only did the salvific history of all that God has done in the prophets, all that he's done with the temple and with Israel and with Abraham, everything that we read in Scripture, Luke believes that it has all been for the purpose of Jesus and his cross and victory and resurrection. And indeed, if you read through Luke and Acts, you'll kind of probably get the idea that Luke believes that he is writing from the standpoint that the world has ended. He believes that he is actually in this apocalypse that the world that he has known, the world as we have known it up until Jesus, is ended and is over. The end of the age has come, in a sense, for Luke. And he writes this way because biblically it has. The kingdom of sin, reigning through death, as our character Paul later says in Romans 5, has been defeated in Christ. Has been defeated in Christ. He begins his letter, that same letter in Romans, by declaring that the Son of He has been declared the Son of God through his victory at resurrection. And since death has been defeated, all other authorities and powers have been crushed as well. This is why you have a freedom. This is why we're not just waiting around for heaven. This is why you can have freedom over addiction today. This is why you can, uh, as Steve reminded us, not be fearful and anxious, but have confidence in the God who saves. This is how you can stand for justice in the here and now, which is so much needed by the church today in our culture especially. This is why we can pray with confidence, knowing that the God who has saved humanity, the King who has conquered death itself, hears us. And as Peter says, we can cast our cares on him because he cares for us. This is the God we serve. Um, Another question in Luke and Acts is, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Luke is constantly answering and de demonstrating this as well. What does it mean to be a member of the kingdom of God is another way we could say that. Luke is very concerned to demonstrate what it looks like to live in the kingdom reality. He's left the old reality, and he invites us time and time again to join him in the kingdom. The old world is completely powerless to stop the disciples of Jesus. We see this in Luke. Uh, I, don't th I don't think it's a coincidence that we've had a lot of Luke in this series. Just last week, James, James shared out of Luke with the road to Emmaus. 
We saw the Samaritan woman also being shared about and all these things. What we see is that Samaritans, Pharisees, Romans, women, children, and men are all called to obey the call or to obey the command of Jesus to leave the world of sin and become citizens of heaven by paying homage. This means paying homage to Jesus as king completely as his subjects and heirs. We believe that Jesus is the savior of the world only because we know he has the authority to do so. Because he is king, because he is victorious, he is able to save. Because he has defeated death, because he has all authority and all power, as we sang this morning, he can save you. But it's not just you that he can save. I also want to look at the Apostle Paul. I am a little nervous that Professor Bennett is here. He did an amazing job in sharing about Paul not long ago. I do encourage all of you to go online and and look that up. And uh, I would hear talking about Paul's background, so be easy on me, Rick. But Paul's background is, we not, this might be elementary, but he was a Jew. And we have to get this in our heads. We have to understand that Paul was a Jew. And he was a particular kind of Jew, as every person is, right? Um, he was a Jew of the dispersion, of the dispora. This means he was not from Jerusalem. This means he actually claims... Uh, and is proud of his citizenship in Acts 21 of being a citizen of Tarsus, no insignificant city. What does it mean to be a citizen of Tarsus? Well, for one, Tarsus is one of the top, one of the five most precious cities to the Roman Empire. They, uh, Tarsus was kind of a free state, uh, able, to, uh, able to rule itself, and, and Rome just let it, do, let it do its thing. Tarsus is extremely, uh, extremely valuable. And without getting into too much on Tarsus, we have to understand that for Paul to be a Jew who was a citizen of Tarsus, it meant that he was part of a prominent family, a few of the Jewish prominent families in Tarsus that went through a lot of sacrifice, a lot of problems, a lot of war, probably going back to the Asmonean dynasty when we first see Tarsus. We have to understand that Paul's family is prominent and important, and we have to understand God's sovereignty and design and wisdom and even ordaining such circumstances so that Paul could have that kind of upbringing. Because to be a citizen of Tarsus meant you knew Greek, meant he knew Latin, he understood Roman, the Roman world, the Greek world, he understood, uh, he, he understood things. He was not as sheltered as the Jerusalem Jews might have been, as we see examples of in Scripture. For example, his argument with, uh, with, with Peter over the Gentiles in the kingdom. He also was a Roman citizen, we need, citizenship in Rome was very different than America. To be a, not, not every Roman was a citizen. In fact, the, the majority of Rome, people living in Rome were not citizens. Citizens had rights. They had rights that were given them by the law. They had the right to a trial before any type of punishment. Paul uses his Roman citizenship, for example, a couple times, one of which after he was beaten and, the, and the, the authorities who beat him were very terrified when they found out he was a Roman citizen. Why? Because now they had committed a crime by punishing a Roman citizen without trial. So also, even more importantly, I think, to Paul's mission is that a Roman citizen meant that you had the right to appeal your case up and up and up, even appealing to Caesar himself. Caesar had to hear you if you were a Roman citizen. And we see here that later on that Paul was chosen to be to be, sorry, to be a representative uh, to kings. Now, um, his type of Judaism, his, his Judaism was Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. This is also very important when we understand that Tarsus had the school of Philo and had all these great Greek Roman schools of thought actually being the premier education location in the world at that time. And yet Paul's family was so devout as a Jew, they rather they sent him to a man or a rabbi named Gamaliel. Gamaliel, who's the grandson of Hillel, who um, Heath has talked about a lot. Gamaliel was so beloved as a rabbi, to this day he's known as one of the most famous and beloved rabbis in rabbinic history. His nickname check this out, was the beloved, uh, the beauty of the law. That's what he, I mean, I don't know if that was like his friends would call him on a night out or anything, but that's what he was known as. And we, we see a rabbinic writing saying that when Gamaliel passed away, the beauty of the law passed with him, mourning for him. He was known for his love of nature. He was known for his kind character. And we see evidence of this when he makes a brief appearance in Acts 5, where he counsels the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, to be careful and cautious and to give this Christian movement some time and give it to God, to trust whether or not it's of, it's of him or not. 
I find it uh, very interesting that his student, his disciple, Saul of Tarsus, we see a couple chapters later, takes a totally different perspective on Christianity. That says something about Paul's zeal, doesn't it? He was so zealous that even his rabbi could not convince him otherwise. We also see that um, not only was he a Jewish Pharisee, but he was a rising star in Judaism. We see that this young man, in, in Acts 7 it says he was a young man, meaning he was 20 to 40 years old. We don't know. But the fact is that he was very soon to be a leader in, in, in the Jewish, or maybe even the Sanhedrin itself. And I'm going to point that out as we, as we move through our narrative. Um, Paul also uh, seemed to have a deep conviction that Christianity was a dangerous threat to Israel. He saw Christianity as probably the latest idolatry that would throw Israel and the people away from Torah and therefore continue and perpetuate their exile. He had a heart and a love for his people, which we see even Paul, after, after coming to Christ in Acts 9, makes very clear. Now also Damascus. If we can look at that slide of Damascus. Damascus, um, actually the other one. All right, Damascus is a very important city as well. It's a city in uh, Syria. It's a, and I just want to read this from Baker's Bible Encyclopedia. I find it fascinating. Uh, but Damascus is a very important city. It's a Syrian oasis city protected on three sides by mountains. Um, it's also situated on trade, trade routes and very important. It's 160 miles from Jerusalem. 160 miles from Jerusalem. The name Damascus can also refer to the surrounding area, southern Syria state. But this is interesting. Though it's close to the desert, this district, it's rich in almonds, apricots, cotton, flax, grains, hemp, olives, pistachios, delicious, pomegranates, tobacco, vineyards, and walnuts. These crops grow well because the land is watered by the two rivers, two rivers that we see in Scripture. In Scripture, they're known as the Abana and the Farpar. A funny thing in 2 Kings 5 is that we see that Naaman actually does not want to wash his leprosy off in the River Jordan because he's from Damascus area, and the River Jordan is so subpar and is such a, a worse river than what he's used to at home. It's a pretty funny story if you want to check that out. Um, we also see in Damascus, for our story, is that it had a huge population, but not only a huge population, it also had a huge Jewish population. Evident from the fact that we see in Acts 9-2 that Paul gets papers from the, from, from the chief priest to go to Damascus to go to the synagogues, plural. It was a, it was a community, a city that had multiple synagogues, um, which shows that it had a huge Jewish population. And not only a Jewish population, but what we're going to see is that Paul understood that there were Christians there. And we see that later on with Ananias, who's a devout Christian in Damascus. He knows that Paul is coming, actually. He knows that Saul is on his way, and he's there waiting for him. So, a little bit of background there. Um, what we need to understand is that uh, Damascus was a far city, right? It's 160 miles to Damascus. They didn't have buses and vans and trains. It was a very hard journey just to go traveling light with everything that you need to survive a 160-mile journey, much less Paul was going there with a huge entourage, with many resources to, to do a task, to arrest any who were found uh, as disciples of Jesus. So he had the means not only to make this journey with all these people, but he had the type of people that were able and willing to take people violently and arrest them. And then he had the means to transport them back to Jerusalem for trial. And just as we, we're about to get into Acts chapter 7 here, what is so far the track record for Christians who stand in Jerusalem on trial? It's not good. It's not just a prison sentence. So we see that. Um, there is a, a portrait of Saul here that we need to make from this all-too-brief introduction. We see that he was privileged, that he was well-rounded, or rather that he knew the world, being from Tarsus. We see that he was devout and zealous for the law in Israel, turning down and resisting, his family turning down and resisting the temptation to be Hellenized. He was also the first great persecutor of the church, which brings us to our next kind of part of our introduction. There's a narrative context we need to keep in play here as we follow the accounts of or where Luke tells us Saul was. In Acts chapter 7, we see towards the end there that a young man named Saul is present with the stoning of Stephen. Stephen is a deacon. 
much like Philip, who we'll meet in just a second. Many people think that this young man named Saul was was there at the stoning of Stephen as like a coat check for the stoners, for those who would stone Stephen. Because it says that they put their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. I would like to just challenge you to understand that Saul, being this student of Gamaliel, being this rising star, which we'll see, his, we'll see the kind of cloud he has in the next chapter when he goes before the chief priest, is standing there not as an observer, but as a, uh, as a planner and as a superintendent over the death of Stephen. He is there to legitimize. He is there to protect, in a sense, the killers and the murderers. He is there to show or say that this is a lawful thing that was done. He is the authority on the scene. He is responsible for the death of Stephen. And I want us to keep this in mind as we think about Stephen's last words. Lord, do not hold this to their account. As he cries out for forgiveness for his persecutors, Stephen is probably the only person, and we'll see this in a second, to ever pray for Paul or Saul, the persecutor. Um, also, I want us to see in Acts 8, Saul, the, he's not content just to murder Stephen. It was just like the beginning. It was like the, 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 the straw on the back. It was just the match that lit a kindle. And Saul is not content just to kill Stephen, but moves into Jerusalem and begins this great persecution. This great persecution. In Acts 8, 1 through 3, we see Paul is in hearty agreement with the, putting, with the putting of Stephen to death. And then we see a great persecution erupts in Jerusalem, and then we are told that it is Saul who is, quote, ravaging the church. In fact, the persecution led and orchestrated by Saul is so severe, it is so violent, that the only Christians who remain in that city are the few who are attending to the burial of Stephen. It is a terrible time for the disciples of Jesus. Also in Acts, chapter, in Acts chapter 9, coming up to our text here, we see that Saul increases his efforts to destroy the church. Not only does he kill Stephen, not only does he start this huge, per- or- orchestrate this very violent, seemingly successful persecution in Jerusalem, but Saul receives the permission and authority from the Sanhedrin to continue his persecution to Damascus, where he knows there is a large Jewish community, and more importantly, a Christian one. We also see from Ananias' response to the vision later on here is that he is a feared man. Saul is a feared man. Saul, it is during this journey, however, to Damascus, this strategic thing, because Damascus, he understands that Damascus is a perfect place to launch a movement. From Damascus, you can get anywhere in the empire. There are resources there. It's trade routes. There's all sorts of ways that the gospel can spread, that this Christian sect, the way, can spread through Damascus. So Saul is not just some ravaged beast just acting on emotion. We see that he is an evil villain. He is a genius. He is strategizing as a general against his enemy. And he is going to Damascus with everything he needs to attempt and to squash the, uh, the Christian movement there so it doesn't hurt anyone else, according to his thinking. So, enough of introduction. Let's look at our text here. Acts chapter 9. Oh, and you can show that map. Sorry, I forgot about that slide. If you, this shows you Jerusalem at the bottom of the map, Damascus at the top. How, how dedicated are you to something, to make that journey? Seriously. To make that journey wrap and come back with prisoners. To stand before the Jewish Sanhedrin. To see many of them executed, I'm sure. Guys, we need to let it sink into our hearts that Paul, the, the one we love now, was not always him. And I think the case in Scripture is pretty airtight that he was a murderer that he was a sinner, that he was far from God, and that he is the first great persecutor of our people. He is the ISIS. He's a terrorist. And I think there's some relevant things for us in our day here as we look at Saul of Tarsus. So let's look at our text here. 
Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He is breathing murder and threats. He hates the church. He is dedicated to one thing and one thing only. It is his mission in life, and he is fueled by what he thinks is a holy hatred. He believes that he is persecuting God's enemies. He believes that he is with the psalmist, like the the imprecatory psalms who pray for God's judgment to come upon his enemies. He is in this line, he believes, of thinking. He believes that God is with him. And so he goes confidently before the chief priest and asks for these papers with these authority, which they grant him. He is a rising star in Judaism. More than likely, if things continue the way they are, he'll be sitting in their seat soon. He has everything in the world at his fingertips for his world, for what he wants to do. He can do whatever he pleases. And he pleases to destroy Christianity. That is his focus. That is his intent Let us continue. We see here in verse 3 that as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul here is brought low. He is knocked to the ground. This is very uh, important to understand literally. For the narrative. He is this haughty enemy. He is this young, vibrant man. He is successful in persecuting Christians. And now he finds himself in the dirt. In the dirt. Saul is now, we see here, a defeated enemy. We don't know what Christ will do with him yet. But he is brought low. And we see this, Paul himself, let's see what Paul himself says about Jesus being this defeater of his enemies. Colossians 2.15, Paul later on in his letter will refer to Jesus as a great warrior king, disarming the rulers and authorities and making a public display of them, having triumphed over them through his cross and resurrection. In Romans 5.10, we see that God has reconciled his enemies to himself through the death and victory of his son, Jesus. In fact, all who are in Christ, if you are in Christ right now, if you are here worshiping him, you are here as a former enemy of God. You are here because God has chosen to reconcile you to himself through his son because you're an enemy and that's the only hope you had of peace with God. It is not a coincidence that that Romans 5.1 begins with having peace and access to God, peace with him because we were enemies, because when we were enemies, Christ died for us. When we hated him, he died for us. And therefore, that's what it took for God to reconcile us to himself was the death of his own son, whose death was actually a victory. 2 Corinthians 2.14, Paul, let me just read this. This is important. A lot of us don't read this verse this way. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 2.14, I hope that this is a verse that you hold on your heart for the rest of your life and you think about it when you're at the grocery store, you think about it when you're on the mission field, you think about it when you're at work, you think about it whether you're on the pulpit or in the pew, wherever you go, know this, that thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Or other translations say in triumphal procession in Christ and manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And Paul, a citizen of Rome and of Tarsus, takes this picture of the victorious Roman army returning to the capital, parading their defeated enemies before Rome. The Roman army in all their glory with humiliated slaves who once were rebels of the empire, defeated and destroyed, even in all their valor and all their might, they cannot resist the great empire. Paul says that we are being led through the world in a triumphant procession led by Christ. The Roman army would also break Uh, clay pots of of fragrances and of perfumes. Hence the term, uh, the phrase, the saying, the smell of victory. It was a beautiful thing with flowers and fragrances showing how great the Roman army might was. To know, Romans, you are safe with us. 
for the gospel according to Rome was that the emperor is here and he is the bringer of justice. Well, Paul says that Jesus is the one who's victorious. Jesus is the one who has conquered all his enemies. Death has fallen, therefore every authority and power has fallen as well, including you. I also want us to see that there's a double vocative here, which is very familiar, especially in the Old Testament. Saul, Saul. Well, we see in Genesis 22:11, Abraham, Abraham. In Genesis 46:2, we see Jacob, Jacob. In Exodus 3:4, we hear Moses, Moses. This indicates, this, again, Luke is tying the salvific history of God with his story of Jesus and with the church. And this is very indicative of God calling someone and interrupting their life and taking control of them for a greater purpose, for his purposes, for his glory. And we know the story of Abraham and Jacob and Moses. How amazing it was that they were interrupted. We know what they were called for. Jesus is the culmination. Jesus is the result. Jesus is the fulfillment of what they were called for. And here we see Saul, the persecutor of the church, the murderer of Stephen, a violent, feared man being called by God. And here's the thing. He is brought low on the ground. Here's the scene. He is guilty of treason. Christians, we believe that there is either those who are committing treason or those who are reconciled to God. There is no neutral way. There is no neutrality in that. You're an enemy of God or you've been you're a former enemy of God. That's really the only place where you're at. And I know in this room, there are both people here hearing this. Saul is confronted by the risen Christ. He is guilty of treason, but he is not crushed. He's called. And commissioned. Also, why are you persecuting me? Do you realize how close your Lord is to you? There is no suffering. There is no heartbreak. There is nothing. There's no sea or storm that you will ever experience where Jesus is not experienced it as well. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Look how close the Messiah is with his people. Stephen was stoned that was persecuting Jesus. Many Christians have already been arrested and hurt and run out of Jerusalem. That was persecuting Jesus because what is true of his people is true of him. What is true of the Messiah is true of his people. And this, Paul later on in Romans 6, makes a great argument for that. Through our baptism, through our salvation in Christ, being baptized into him means that true fellowship, true koinonia is this interchange of identity. We saw this as well in Philemon. If you call yourself a Christian, then the person next to you who is a Christian, you are them and they are you. This is what it means to bear one another's burdens and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And Paul here is confronted by the risen Christ who says, why are you persecuting me? He stands for his people. He vindicates his people. You may not think he does. Things like cancer and death and injustice, and violence, all these things seem to point to the fact that sometimes God isn't hearing, sometimes he doesn't care, but please rest in the fact that his ways are not your ways. Abraham, we see in Genesis, we see this understanding that the God of, the judge of all the earth will do right. I want you to know today, that you might not have Saul persecuting you. But whatever is against you, Jesus confronts it with the same question. Many enemies of the church today persecute our brothers and sisters in other countries around the world, and Jesus asks them the same question. 
He considers it a persecution against himself. We see this in Luke 10, 16, that whoever rejects you rejects me. And there are many other ways that we can see this in Scripture. Paul, Saul is on the ground a defeated foe and he asks, who are you, Lord? That's an interesting thing. We're not going to get too much into that, but there's different theories on that. Maybe it's like he's asking, who are you, sir? Obviously, you're powerful. I'm here on the ground. I can't see. Others think that he was asking, who, all right, maybe I don't understand who God is. Who are you, God? But either way, the answer is what we sang this morning, the name of Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Again, we have a defeated foe on the ground, on the road to Damascus, heading to do a great evil. He doesn't realize it's a great evil, but he does now. See, the, the one who thought he was the persecutor of God's enemies now realizes that he is the enemy. And he is done. Like the prophets of old, he's undone. There's nothing that he can do. But we see that Jesus' tone and language changes from one of condemnation, from one of accusation, to one of commission and restoration. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. Jesus completely takes control of Saul's life. He doesn't ask his permission. He doesn't beg him. He takes control of this man's life. You are persecuting me. You're my enemy, but no more. Now you're mine. Go to the city and await my orders. Many of us think that this is very unique. And there, is, there are many unique things about the conversion of Paul that would be different than our experience. But one thing that's not different is that Christ calls you and takes complete control of your life. We must be with Paul. Paul says in Romans, he begins his letter, Paul, a slave of Christ. We must understand individual consumer Americans that we are slaves of Christ with him. We must understand that we are former enemies of God and that the only hope that we had was to be completely conquered by God's grace. And that's really what this text is about, God's grace. God's grace means that it, his enemies are defeated now and commissioned for his purposes rather than bowing before him in their appointed time of judgment. Oh, how terrible a place it is to be to avoid grace, to not be conquered and brought low by grace in this life, only to stand before your enemy in judgment. The author of Hebrews says there is an appointed time for every man and woman on when to die and then their judgment. There's an appointment. And I don't care how late you are to your doctor's appointment, you will be on time for this one. I will be on time for this one. And it is essential that we understand that when Paul later on says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, I cry out and pray that all of us here would bow now, today, in grace and not judgment. Because he is king. He is king. He is, yes, we have a friend in Jesus. That's amazing. Please, your relationship with God through Christ, hold dear to it, cultivate it every day. That spiritual formation is necessary. But we must every day acknowledge that first and foremost, he is our friend and savior because he is king. He would not be a friend or savior if he did not have power to do what he has done. If he did not have all absolute authority, if he was not the one in Daniel 7 who has an everlasting dominion, who has a kingdom that will never know defeat. This is the Jesus whom we serve. This is the Jesus that we bring to Dunedin. There is no power. There is no city council. There is no disease. There is no movement. There is no skeptic. There is no idea. There is no institution that can overcome the grace of God. And I know this because your heart, which is so, which all of our hearts were so hard. But like Paul, we were brought low. And we praise him for his grace. 
his ravaging, abundant, and amazing grace. Let's move on. I want to also just remind us that Stephen prayed a prayer. He prayed a prayer that his enemies who are responsible for his death would be forgiven. Notice the results of that prayer. And I want to kind of, listen, Ananias is a devout man. He's a devout man. But as we look at Ananias right now, verse 10, I want us to understand that Ananias feared Saul. He hated him. He did not pray for him more than likely. He comes, Ananias, look at Ananias' response to the Lord. The Lord comes to Ananias in verse 10, Ananias, and he says, Here I am, Lord. He knows the voice in the presence. He is there. He is devout. He loves Christ. He is dear to God. He is reconciled to God. He trusts in Christ. He says, Here I am. Whatever you want me to do, Lord. And what does God tell him to do? I want you to get up and go to the straight street. Go to Judas' house. There is Saul of Tarsus there praying. I want you to lay hands on him so that he can receive his sight. I've told him you're coming in a vision. And Ananias knows who he's talking to, argues with the Lord. Well, Lord, maybe you don't know this. I don't know if this has occurred to you, but this man is violent. He's persecuted. I don't look, this is Damascus. I know it's 160 miles away, but do you know what happened in Jerusalem? He's persecuted your people. And Ananias in his fear and sin, and listen, let's not give him too bad, a too bad a rap because we have all been guilty of this. Our fear and our sin, our anxiety allows us to have bad theology. And Ananias forgot that the one whom he's speaking to is omniscient. He knows all things. Indeed, the Reformed position of knowledge is that God is the source of all knowledge. Any thought that I have is a rethinking of his thought first. I'm totally dependent on him. And in my sin, I twist it and I mar it. But the idea that Ananias would ask God if it had occurred to him, nothing occurs to God. Nothing disappoints God. God never gets his hopes up. He's never surprised. He never has an aha moment. He knows all things perfectly. Let that be a comfort to you, Christian. He knows better than you your heart and what you're feeling. He knows not only what you're feeling in the moment like we do, but he knows where it will lead. And he promises that it will lead to conformity into the sun. He promises that it will be for your blessing, not for your cursing. He promises that it will be for victory. He never calls his children to the storm. He never calls us to battle without winning it for us first. And we need to understand that. For example, we have, what we see here is that uh, Ananias and Paul both learn that the absolute authority is Jesus. But we see this in Acts 8. See, Saul thinks that he's so successful in his persecution. But what do we see the result of? We see the beginning of Acts where Jesus tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in, Judea, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then we see that Paul, the Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor, thinks that he is big and bad, thinks that his persecution is successful, when really all it does is do exactly what Jesus told his disciples to do. And we see that because of what he has done, Philip does go to Samaria and plants a church there. By the way, we see that Jesus was already in Samaria. The only person he told directly to their face that he was the Messiah was that Samaritan woman, outcast. And there was a great movement already beginning there. How wise, how exciting, how powerful is the God that we serve? So I assure you, I promise you, I do not want to do injustice to your situation by pretending I know, but I can promise you that he does. And I can promise you that your church, that your community is here to suffer with you, to pray with you, to mourn and grieve with you. This is what it means to be community, which brings us back to our text in Acts 9. Because though Ananias argued, though Ananias didn't realize what was going on, though he had sin, we see that he repents. And he does go to the praying Saul at the house of Judas. He does go there and he does lay his hands. And this man he hated and feared, he calls brother. One of the most powerful phrases in Scripture to me is Brother Saul. 
If you are far from God today, I am so glad you're here. And I want you to know that you're an enemy. And I don't say that to judge you. I say that to let you know because I was one as well. I want you to know that because God's word categorizes people in that way. And I also tell you that because God has a great desire to reconcile you through his son even now. The cross of Christ is the only answer and hope that we have in this world. He is king, which means that he is completely in control. And in his control, he gave his life on a cross, bloody and beaten. He paid the debt that you, enemy of God, racked up and and need to pay. The law of God that we have broken and violated, every single one of us, he fulfilled it perfectly and yet suffered the consequences of its most heinous curses, death itself. And not only the death on a cross, but also suffering under the just wrath of a holy God who for the first time in all eternity turned his face away from the Son. For you. This is not soft, fuzzy Christianity. The Bible talks about a conquering grace that comes forth from a great king who has not just called you to go to heaven, but he has work for you to do. Rest assured, if you come to Christ, you will be commissioned to do things that are uncomfortable, even maybe your life. But as Paul later on says, he counts all things as rubbish before the excellency that is Christ. There is nothing more precious Nothing more important than knowing Christ. Also, if you, are, if you come to Christ, I want you to know that we are a community that loves to take you in, lay hands on you, and call you a brother or sister. Notice here that not only did he call him brother, but he proved it. He fed him. More importantly, he was baptized. That's huge. This man hated Saul, and now he's calling him brother and baptizing him? I'll be honest with you. There's some parts of church history I think Pastor Heath went over, like in the 300s, where this would just be a huge no-no. This dude hasn't been in in, in catechism for a year. What are you baptizing him for so quickly? We don't know. We need to be sure that he's a brother. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but in this, also, I don't think they had a vision telling them to do it. Paul is baptized. He eats and is strengthened in the community of Christ. You can come to the community of Christ and be baptized and be strengthened and encouraged. If you need actual food, you can have food. If you need even more important spiritual nourishment and replenishment, you can have that. Please let us serve Christ by serving you in that way. And now we see that for several days he was in the disciples. He was with the disciples who were at Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. How things have turned on their head. He gets to Damascus, and he causes a scene like, he was, like the plan was. But he has a new master. He has a new status. Indeed, the Saul of Tarsus that we know in Acts 6, or Acts, yeah, Acts 7, 8, and 9 no longer exists. He's been extinguished. He's been changed and transformed. He's been regenerated by Christ, by the call of the gospel, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close with a challenge to you all. I know I try to put challenges throughout this this sermon. But who in your life is unreachable? And be honest with yourself. Who have you written off? Maybe it's just a TV celebrity. Sometimes Bill Maher comes to mind when I think of this. It's like my dream to be on a show. Oh, I love that. There's a family member, perhaps, a co-worker. And be honest, I don't like that dude. Ah, she's so hard to get along with. Oh, she's such an idiot. We think this way. Man, they're so vile. How can they live their life that way? What kind of parents are they? How could they do that to their kids? Did they murder and pillage and ravage the church of Christ. Even if they did, what we have here is an example that there is no one, no heart too hard, 
no sin too vile or dark. Because if we say that there is, then we say that, that the grace of God is weak. And also, even worse, we say that we are just a little bit better, good enough to take advantage of that grace. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. The American church thinks this way a lot. Let us be different. Let us know that the radical grace of God is the only reason we're here. Every breath, every thought, being reconciled to God, the food on our table, the family that we have, the health, even if it's failing, the breath, everything that we have is a gift of God. Every good and perfect thing is a gift from him. I want to challenge you to pray for that person. Be Stephen, not Ananias. And then, when you're, and then what you'll find is that when you are Stephen now, when now you've changed and you're praying, then you become Ananias and you obey and go to them. Perhaps you'll be called to bring them into community. I don't know. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your radical, powerful grace. It is a grace that does not just give us a morality. It is a grace that completely interrupts our lives. It completely changes us. Oh, the only hope that we have is your son. We praise you for your son, the Messiah. He is the only king worthy of praise and glory. Like Saul, we have been brought low. Like Saul, we have been conquered by your grace. And we sing your praises forever. We are grateful. Thank you for saving us. Give us hearts for the lost. Give us hearts for the Saul's in our life. Let us obey you and go to them. Let us trust that the power of the gospel, that message of the kingdom of God come in Jesus, is able to break any chain, melt any heart, crush any enemy. It is your love that does this. It is your great kindness to us. Lord, let Grace Church of Dunedin be a light in this community. Let us be a fragrance. Let us be led as ones who used to hate you, but now are full of love and grace. And let us invite all who we meet to join us in the kingdom of God. For your kingdom is the only kingdom that is everlasting. Your kingdom is the only eternal, everlasting dominion. It is the only kingdom that will never know defeat. So we thank you for the cross of Christ, our hope and our stead. We thank you for the resurrection, giving us not only reconciliation with you, meaning an, an afterlife, but also, Father, a liberty and a freedom to live in you today and now. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.